Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. something a mother can do for a child, when a, a good enough mother, as, as one psychologist put it, is when a child is in distress or in agony or it's been bad or it, it, it's tormented by something, the mother can look at the child and say, yes, but you're still my child. and It's basically all right. And my mother wasn't able to do that for me. Uh, and it's not her fault. It really isn't her fault. Music, at first was what was able to do that, to reflect, as they would say back, the distress that I felt, and to say, it's all right. <laughs> it's fundamentally all right. That's how music comes into it, and Roger describes that beautifully, how that works with, with Tristan and Isolde. And it parallels so marvelously what I'd felt with Shostakovich, were those moments when his music had met me in my own mental extremity and pain, and seemed to say, Yes, it's as bad as you think, but it's all right. It's okay. And it, it, it seems such an extraordinary thing. And, and, and anybody who's never, who's had a good enough mother and has never known what it is to feel fundamentally that it isn't all right, probably, well, you, if that's the case with you, then, you, then you're very lucky. <laughs> you're privileged. But if you ever have had experience of knowing, of feeling that things aren't all right and that you aren't all right, then it is extraordinary how many of those of us who have experienced that have felt that music has somehow given them that sense of reassurance that the, the mother couldn't give. Shostakovich can meet us in moments of terrible isolation, as he can in moments of shared joy. The discerning words of music broadcaster, writer and composer Stephen Johnson from his new book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, published by Notting Hill Editions. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What does music do to our brains? And can music help us make sense of our world and the challenges we experience? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with British music broadcaster, writer and composer Stephen Johnson, who argues in How Shostakovich Changed My Mind that Shostakovich was a man used to wearing masks. Survival in Stalin's terrifying dictatorship demanded that of all its public figures. Stephen goes on to state, This book is not an attempt to reach some real Shostakovich, to drag him out from behind the complex array of mass and defensive walls and say, Behold the man. In fact, it isn't really a book about Shostakovich at all. So who was Shostakovich and how does his music speak to the 21st century? Hello, I'm Stephen Johnson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and composer. And I've written a book about a composer, a Russian composer, Dmitry Shostakovich, who's fascinated me and moved me and stirred me since I was a teenager. And who I really think has played an important part in keeping me sane. And I don't think that's a small achievement, actually, given the mental health problems that have been inherited via my family. So in a way, it's a tribute to the power of music the power of music to sustain us and help us in some quite extreme circumstances. 
Really well done on the book, Stephen. I have to say it's a powerful and hugely moving read. I absolutely loved it on so many different levels. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and then we can um, we can take it from there. When I say the word Shostakovich, what jumps into your head? What do you automatically think of? Where do you go? Well, um, I can see his face for a start. It's a very distinctive face, that nervous, shy, rather childlike face usually hidden behind those very, very, very thick glasses. It's a face that doesn't often smile. And when you know what he went through as, well, eventually, effectively the premier composer during all the years of Stalin's Soviet Union, so he was being raised aloft one moment and cast down into terrifying places the next. But I also think of his music and how extraordinary it is that music that came out of so much pain and turmoil and such dark circumstances and dark times, not just Stalin's tyranny, but also the horror of World War II, which really struck Russia particularly badly, that this music just seems to so many people, myself included, to have been a lifeline in all sorts of different circumstances. And the whole thing about the book really was was me trying to understand how it is that music seems to have to offer very little hope in its content actually seems to have offered a lot of hope to a lot of people. And I, I, I think that's fascinating. Why do we need dark music? Why do we need music like Shostakovich's? And um, what I also think about him when the na- you mention the name is a very honorable and brave man who, despite his vulnerability and fragility, managed to strike an incredibly difficult balance through all those difficult political times and somehow keep his integrity, because deep down he knew that what he was doing was important for other people. And so I suppose the end feeling I have to him is gratitude. You know, thank you for sticking at what you were doing, because it's been important to so many people. In your introduction, Stephen, you describe Shostakovich's music as music that has plenty to say. And it got me thinking that all types of music has something to say or has mm. some kind of question that it puts in your head. And it may be a question or a story that you don't like. But music, by definition, is creating a conversation, isn't it? I think it is. And his is particularly. He was always very interested in communication. One of the first jobs he ever had, I think at the age of about 18, was playing the piano in a cinema to accompany silent films. So he had to improvise for films, for the movies, for people in hard times. And he, you, you soon learn, in a, in a way, what works and what doesn't. And you have to be very responsive to the way that the audience is responding to you and to what you're doing to the film. Later years, he was a very, very fine writer of film music, not just for Shakespeare films and for very powerful dramas, but also for very popular films, action movies, effectively, for for the Russian audience. So again, you have to be very sensitive to how music speaks to people. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he is one of the last, perhaps the last great classical composer who really speaks to a very, very wide audience. You know, you look on YouTube and there, there are millions of views for some of his works and you see the comments that people read and people write. And you realize that actually this, this, this is music that, that very much is about communication. As often with music, it isn't always easy to be quite categorical about what precisely it's saying. Yet it does seem to me that there's a remarkable convergence when it comes to the emotions that are conveyed by Shostakovich's music. People tend to feel similar sorts of things, I think, in his music, to take a similar sort of message from it, I think, on the whole. Certainly those who love it do. 
You say somewhere in the book that there's something about music that defies analysis. You say that, you know, whether it's psychological, uh, philosophical, neurological or any other type of rational approach. Can you talk me through that? Well, music seems to take you to almost to, to the most inward place in oneself, or it certainly does to me. So that, that place where your one's own being, in a way, is a mystery. You know, um, there's just so much about being alive, which is absolutely extraordinary, and being conscious and feeling as one feels. Um, sometimes we're too busy to stop and think about what an extraordinary thing it is just to be alive and to feel. But music, it seems, can take us to the very, very basic states of being and touch our feelings in a way, because it doesn't work through words, it doesn't work through the intellect, it can touch us almost in an almost physical way, I think, like that. Uh, and um, it is fascinating how much more we know now about how music works on the brain. And I know a couple of eminent neurologists who've been doing great work on this. And um, there are even things you can do now. You can attach scanners to the brain and see certain parts of the brain lighting up in response to certain kind of musical stimuli. And you can infer all sorts of things about it. And yet the state we're at in understanding it, well, a, a, a one neurologist friend of mine put it and said, we're roughly equivalent to a, a, a pack of cavemen in the, the car park of Google, looking up at Google's headquarters, trying to work out what he does by looking at which lights come on in which rooms when. You know, <laughs> that's how, how far we've got. It's amazing what science can tell us. Philosophers have, have, have meditated on this for a long time. Psychotherapy can also tell us very valuable things about how we respond to music. But in the end, it remains a mystery, just as existence is a mystery, really, and consciousness is a mystery. And that's very important because, for me, the experience of music is, is strongly connected with, I, I kind of want to call it the sacred. I, I don't mean that in, a, in an old-fashioned religious sense, but that, that sense of the value of life and of human life. Um, what it is that makes us valuable and important and what it is that makes us matter, that music is strongly, strongly connected with that. And I think that that's been important to me too because depression can, when you're really experiencing very severe clinical depression, can take you to the stage where you genuinely lose faith in the belief that you actually matter, that you can come close to feeling that nothing matters, including yourself. And... In moments like that, there have been times when music has touched me and made me feel, well, no, no, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe there is meaning, maybe there is hope, and maybe there is value in existence. And um, that's when it gets, it begins to sound almost mystical, but, but that's, when it, that's when you realize just how little we know <laughs> about anything, really. But there's a comfort to that in a very unusual way, because um, within the mystery as you describe it, there is um, there's nourishment. There is nourishment. Uh, interestingly enough, I put a quotation at the beginning of the book of a, a sentence that's always haunted me, which is, seems to me to have an awful lot to do with when in depression when music speaks to you. And it's from Kafka's Metamorphosis, and that's a famously bleak story about the man who wakes up in one morning to discover he's been transformed into an enormous insect and his family are initially shocked, then compassionate, and then they kind of reject him and he dies neglected and alone. And it seems like a terrible story. But not far from the end, there's a moment when uh, Gregor, the hero in inverted commas, hears the sound of a violin playing and he asks himself, how could he be an insect, a brute beast, if, if music could make him feel like this? 
And that's the sentence that haunted me. And I can remember reading that years ago and thinking, one day I'll write a book about this. And in a strange way, that's what this book turned out to be. Um, but the line I didn't translate from the Kafka which, that follows is that it, it seemed to Gregor that this music promised the hope of some higher nourishment or something like that. And I, I'm fascinated that you say that because it does seem to meet us in a place where it almost nourishes us. Um, one thing I was fascinated to discover, for instance, is that, that um, uh, for instance, there's a hormone called oxytocin, which the brain produces, which is very important in the bonding between mothers and newborn infants. And uh, it's, called for, it's often called the love hormone. And um, music can stimulate the production of that in us. So this feeling sometimes when music seems to reflect back to us what we feel, um, that it almost seems to do so in a kind of loving way, almost, um, that this actually has some actual biological basis, that there is something like that actually happening in the brain. The number of people I know who said that they felt that hearing their own worst emotions sometimes reflected back in music is a strangely reassuring process. And I quote an old Russian man I met back in, I think, the early 90s in Russia, and we were talking about this paradox, and he said to me, I was asking him, how was it that people who lived under the terror of the Stalinist tyranny found such comfort in hearing Shostakovich's saddest, bleakest, most desolate music at this time. And he said, there's something about hearing your most painful emotions transformed into something beautiful. And I, I knew exactly what he meant. It's one of the most affirmative things I think that art can do for us, it can actually show us our own worth, even in moments of extreme loneliness and pain. And, you know, you can see why some people are tempted to talk about it almost in religious terms, because it, it can be almost like that. You have a very moving passage in the book about the backstory to Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony. And you oh, met yeah. with one of the surviving members of uh, the orchestra who performed in 1942 in St. Petersburg under the siege when there was chronic malnutrition. The yes, city think, was think, falling apart. I think a million apart. people died. It is how uh, Victor um, described it all. It is just unbelievable to think that. Um, well, I, I remember that vividly. Yeah. I, I remember sitting in his tiny flat in Petersburg, and he was there right next to me, and his wife was sitting on the bed opposite, was sort of urging him on. I could see she was very enthusiastic. But, you know, they both clearly wanted this story to be told. And he told with great enthusiasm and warmth about these experiences, about how they, well, the first rehearsal, everyone was so weak that the the woodwind, for instance, couldn't blow for more than 10 minutes. So they had to have nourishment sort of flown in under armed convoy to help them build up the strength to play this thing. And um, at the end of it, I asked him, after all these astonishing stories that he tells, you know, a rather pat interviewer's question, when you hear this music today, does it still have the same effect? And it was as though this tsunami hit this tiny flat. And they both just started sobbing and both of them and I remember him grabbing my arm and saying it's not possible to say it's not possible to say and I, I think at one point I said sometimes I can still feel that grip that's not an exaggeration that's not as a writer's conceit that's true I can actually feel it now as I'm talking to you because not just because that grip was almost the most profound testimony to what Shostakovich's music had done for these people but it was also because he was including me 
you know, I, I, he could so easily have said, this is an experience we had, and you coming from a nice, safe country with a far more, with no experience of the war and of this terrible deprivation, it's not for you, you know. And yet nothing that he said gave that impression remotely. In fact, at no stage have I ever met a Russian who in any way balked at the idea that an English boy growing up in a much safer, more prosperous, freer country could feel that this music was speaking to him too. That was absolutely was always the response. And when Viktor Kozlov grabbed my arm like that, I, I, I felt this, this, this extraordinary sense of saying, no, you, know, you, you understand me, don't you? You know what I mean. And one of the things I try to say in the book, which is so difficult to explain, but so many other people have said something similar, and, and this is something that I think you often find in Russian art in particular. There's a, there's a going back to the novels of Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Pushkin's poetry or whatever, there's a real sense that the artist can't function on his or her own, that they need the people, not just as an audience, but as a sort of resonator to confirm the value of what it is that they're doing. And this sense that the artist really only comes into him or herself when he or she speaks on behalf of the nation as well as themselves. You find that, for instance, in Shostakovich's contemporary, the poet Anna Akhmatova, a very similar sense. And there are places in Shostakovich's music where you really sense that the music is evoking communal images as well as, as, well as trying to... It isn't just an artist speaking to you about his own private experience. He's, he's speaking on behalf of a people. And those we moments, if you like, in Shostakovich, where the I becomes we and is joined by we, I realize were very, very important for me as a painfully isolated teenager, as I was particularly, um, for all sorts of reasons, um, that there was a real sense that I listened to this music, that there was some sort of we somewhere that I could belong to. And... Um, it's been a gradual process, but I do, and many, many forces in my life have helped me, I think, emerge from that kind of spiritual desert island. But Shostakovich's music is definitely part of that process. I suppose it's all about creative resilience and every aspect of Shostakovich's life um, was that, really, wasn't it? Yes, I, and, and this is the extraordinary thing. I mean, there were people, there were artists at the time who you'd have thought would be far more likely to survive what Shostakovich went through than than he did, but clearly he had some core of profound inner strength. And there are moments that, that humor was very much part of it. He had a terrific, wicked sense of humor, and that comes through in the music in some places. In fact, there's one part of one of his symphonies, the 15th, where a favorite little rhythm of his, diddlum, 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 suddenly turns into the William Tell overture. And I've seen actually people laugh out loud at concerts when they're not expecting that. It's such a wonderful surprise. Diddlum, 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 you know, just, just for a moment. Um, but also, I, I, I don't know quite where it comes from, but, but it, it's there and it resurfaces in the most extraordinary things. And there's a letter from, of his which... I find incredibly moving, which he wrote in 1948, when after having been a hero during the war and the, the Leningrad Symphony had been just raised and offered the ultimate of what Soviet art could achieve on behalf of the people, uh, this symphony that had been written in the siege and performed there and was flown all around the world on microfilm so that American and European orchestras could play it and this kind of thing. Um, he suddenly found himself cast down and condemned. There was an infamous denunciation by the Composers' Union Congress in which he was denounced as an enemy of the people and a bourgeois formalist, and his music was banned. 
And one piece of this, in particular the Eighth Symphony, the one that follows the Leningrad Symphony, was absolutely excoriated and torn to shreds by it. You can see people just queuing up to to dis- destroy the fallen hero, if you know what I mean. And um, he writes a letter to one of his very closest friends with whom he has such understanding that he can almost expect his friend to, to read between the lines. And he describes how he takes out the score, the music of the Eighth Symphony, and goes through the whole thing in his head. It's an hour-long piece of music. And he says, when I got to the end, all I could feel was proud and happy that I'd been able to write such a thing. And there are moments like that when you sense this strength that seems to emerge and support him in extreme conditions. Because, you know, he could have he could have he could have died. He could have been sent to the gulag. He you know, he could have been yet another of those artists who disappeared. Many of his friends did. Yet, you know, in such moments you feel and the music clearly seems to speak of something very similar, even when it's at its most desolate, and it quite often is desolate, you sense also the strength. Um I I remember a great 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 Irish writer, Samuel Beckett, was once somebody said, Well, there's not a lot of hope in your work, Sam, is there? And apparently he replied, but if I didn't hope, why would I write? And um, in Shostakovich's darkest moments, the music seems to say the same thing. You know, he's, he's supposed to have said on one occasion, when a man is even, even when a man is in despair, he still believes in something. And maybe that's not true for everybody, but it clearly was for Shostakovich. And that is something that, that is conveyed in that music, I think. Do you think some people misunderstood his political um, sensibilities in terms of some would have seen him as a loyal servant of Stalin purely because he was participating in the system, producing uh, different symphonies and clearly very prolific? He did write things that that were clearly designed to fulfil an official directive. Well, arguably he was an yeah. artist like Beckett who kept going on and yeah. was very, very driven. So getting that balance must have been extraordinarily difficult and presumably was difficult. misunderstood by lots of different people both in, inside uh, Russia and outside. Oh yes, it's died down now but there was for some years after he died a furious controversy about, for instance... Just after Shostakovich died, a book appeared called Testimony, which claims to be the memoirs of Shostakovich, as dictated to um, a musicologist called Solomon Volkov. And the arguments about whether or not it's genuine have been so vicious. It might surprise people outside the musical world, but they really have been. Um, my own feeling is that there is certainly truth in it, but I couldn't give you a scientific, rational explanation as to why. There are just things in it that ring true. But, you know, he, he did have to fulfill this terribly difficult... You know, his life depended on it at some stage, you know, of being able to placate the authorities. There is no question about it. A terrific example of this is one of his most popular works, The Fifth Symphony, which he wrote in 1937. The year before, his career had gone through an absolutely spectacular reversal. His opera... A Lady Macbeth of the Matsensk District, which is a kind of extraordinary tragedy comedy, had been a huge success. It was raised aloft basically as the as the Soviet Union's number one cultural exhibit. It ran for two years continuously at the opera in Moscow. It was seen all over the world. Suddenly, an editorial appeared in Pravda, the official paper of the state, uh, denouncing Shostakovich and the opera in appalling terms. I, I mean, the last sentence of this article was, things could end very badly. I mean, you don't get a worse review than that. 
And um, he had somehow or other to rehabilitate himself and yet somehow at the same time keep his integrity. And how he did it is, is near miraculous. The, the, the Fifth Symphony is mostly deeply tragic in its, in its expression, but it, it raises itself up at the end to a colossal, seemingly affirmative conclusion in the major key with fanfares on the trumpets and pounding drums. But it's, it's wonderfully equivocal, that ending. You can hear it as triumph if you want, but on the other hand, there's something maybe just a little bit over-emphatic about it. Does it really answer the dark questions that are posed in the rest of the symphony? The authorities seem to have bought it. They called it an optimistic tragedy. They said, yes, this is the artist showing how he emerges from his isolation and pain into a full sense of belonging to the collective um, and participating in the progress of the Soviet Union. But many of the people who were in that first audience, and I've met some of them, testified to how directly this music spoke to them about the pain of what they were actually going through. Uh, one old man, I met another man, he was in tears as he told me, he said, you know, you're in hell, terrible things are happening around you, people are disappearing, you don't know what's going to happen next. And art is grinning inanely and telling you that this is the communist paradise and everyone should be happy. And suddenly there's this music that says, no, it really is as bad as you think, and you want to weep for joy because you feel you're not alone. And um, how he did that, I still, I still marvel at it, actually. I think it's one of the most extraordinary and, and inexplicable achievements in all art, the way that somehow... You have to imagine that, that what we're talking about is a society which in some ways, at its worst, is rather like Kim Jong-un's career, where no dissent is tolerated. You must smile whenever you speak of anything connected with the officialdom or the policies of the party. You must forget anybody who has been disappeared. You must pretend that everything is right all the time and always for the best. Somehow or other, his music time and time again managed to sort of smuggle under the barbed wire the real truth about what's happening in that country. And there are times when you listen to the eye and you think, how on earth did he get away with it? It's absolutely extraordinary. And there were times when he didn't. But possible answer may be that there were some artists who Stalin, I wouldn't say necessarily liked, because it's very difficult to say that a man as psychotically destructive as Stalin can ever be capable of liking anyone. But he, he kind of felt they were all right. They were important. And so he played a sort of cat and mouse game with them. The novelist Mikhail Bulgakov is another example, or Boris Pasternak. And um, you sort of you build them up, then you knock them down, and then you build them up again. And it may be that that was the case with uh, Shostakovich and Stalin. Um, but whatever, uh, Shostakovich certainly took some extraordinary risks in writing the music that he did when he did. And yet... He was somehow, he was too important, I think, in the end. The Soviet Union, if it was announced there was another symphony or a concerto coming from, from Shostakovich, the, the whole world wanted to know. And so they had to make sure that he was there, seemed to be still alive. So in a way, I suppose, circumstances worked in his favor in that sense. But, but still, it's an astonishing balancing act. It really is.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British music broadcaster, writer and composer Stephen Johnson about his new book, How Shots to Covid Changed My Mind, published by Notting Hill Editions, where Stephen writes the Michelangelo Suite sounds to me like clinical depression laid out in music. I asked Stephen about the work of British charity, The Musical Brain, and their research into how musical therapy can be used to treat various illnesses. Well, this is a coming together of musicians, artists, psychotherapists, neurologists, medics of other kinds, just people who are genuinely interested, philosophers, to talk about... um, music and the brain and how the understanding that we're reaching about the brain um, throws light on what we experience and of when we listen to music but also particularly as well about um, application of music in various forms of therapy and there are just so many beyond what I talk about in the book because I'm what I'm talking about is a very particular kind of experience uh, music for instance with people with autism for instance sometimes allows them to experience emotions that are clearly there, but they're not readily accessible sometimes in their normal mental life. Or music in therapy with people with brain damage, for instance, who can't remember certain things. There's a fantastic story I heard recently, my wife was telling me, because she works in, in people with people with brain injuries, about a man who couldn't remember the order in which he put on his clothes in the morning. So they taught him a little song he could sing about when to put on his socks and when to put on his underpants and when to put on his pants and all that sort of stuff. And that worked. It's extraordinary. Music can also, after brain damage, help you reroute the neural channels in your brain so that you can engage other parts of the brain to do some of the work that the damaged part used to do. And music, um, I've experienced a little of this myself, but music can also be enormously important in helping people to deal with traumas. Uh, the experience of trauma, partly because music not only expresses very powerful feelings, it contains them, it shapes them. There's that fabulous line in Shakespeare, isn't there, about the poet gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Well, music doesn't give it a name, but you could say it gives it a local habitation and a form. And when you've given a form to feelings that were shapeless and terrifying, maybe, then when you've given them a form and you can contain them, they become an object that you can contemplate. And the moment they become an object that you can contemplate, then you're not entirely participating in them. It's, it's almost as though instead of being possessed by these terrifying feelings, you're holding them in your hand, looking at them objectively. And the moment you can do that, then that sense of being out of control and absolutely at the mercy of your feelings that some people with trauma experience is no longer the case. And this is something that people experience, for instance, when they go to psychotherapy with trauma. But it's also something I do believe that music can do for people. It gives shape to the feelings, and you can almost literally get a hold on them. And uh, one thing I had to realize, when I first started doing therapy and and started to understand my own condition, my own bipolar better, and, and, and to understand as well the impact of my upbringing, there was a period when I thought, well, one day there'll be a big happy ending when, when, when all this will be gone and I shall be a nice, normal, happy human being. And I, there had to come a point when I think I realized, 
No, in a sense, this pain isn't going to go away. It'll always be there in some sense or other. But it doesn't have to dominate me. It doesn't have to incapacitate me the way that it used to. And that in itself is a, is a great, great moment. I think it's what Freud meant when he talked about psychotherapy being able to take away people's pathological misery and replace it with ordinary unhappiness. When you've experienced pathological misery and mental illness, then ordinary unhappiness is a blessing. It feels like a great thing. I think to be unhappy without being completely overwhelmed or incapacitated or crippled by it is what ordinary unhappiness is. And that's, that's a fine thing. That's part of everyday existence and there's nothing wrong with it. How important was cognitive behavioural therapy for you, Stephen? I know, as you said, your wife Kate is in, in, um, in, in support services, psychological support services, and she's quite expert at all of that. First of all, I did the kind of therapy where you talk a lot about your childhood experience and, and how that might have helped form you. And that was very, very important because there were an awful lot of things I realized I just did not want to accept or to allow myself to believe about the way, particularly my relationship with my mother had developed. And coming to the, to the realization of that was liberating. But then comes the point about how you deal with what that's made of you and what that's left of you. And that's the point at which I think that old-fashioned kind of therapy ceases to be quite so helpful. Yes, it's, it's very important to know the story about how you became what you are, but then comes the point with how you deal with what you are. And there, there, there's a form of cognitive uh, therapy called ACT at the moment, Acceptance Commitment Therapy, which in some ways is connected with the Buddhist idea of mindfulness, but which is rather more sophisticated than some forms of that as are around today. It's a bit of a buzzword, mindfulness, I know. But it, it's bringing you to this point where, it, it, I think to, you, to use a kind of metaphor, I, I felt when I was really ill with either elation or depression, I felt like a, like a man clinging to a life raft in the middle of a terribly stormy sea. And what it brings you to the point is actually that um, not so much a life raft, but a small boat. And that after a while, you become aware that you can experience the storm without necessarily capsizing in it. Um, that part of you that learns not to participate in the feelings, not to be overwhelmed by them, so that you can accept them. And it seems an extraordinary thing to say sometimes to talk about terribly powerful, disturbing emotions that you could ever accept them. But you, it, it, you can come to the stage where they don't overwhelm you in the sense that they did before. And I think I have, I hope this is true, I'm touching wood as I say this, but reached the stage in my life when sometimes when these very, very powerful feelings come towards me, it's like I'm in my little boat and a huge wave comes towards me. And I think, well, I know what to do now. So let's go into emergency procedure. And certainly there have been experiences of that and the, 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 the almost exhilaration that comes from realizing that, yeah, once again, I've survived it. And... um Cognitive therapy can really, really help you in that. It's, it's, it's developing a, almost a routine, almost a reflex in how to learn to deal with your own feelings. Um, and then the, developing the relationship you have towards your own feelings. Because particularly when I was younger, there were times when I just felt absolutely overwhelmed and almost drowning in what I felt. And I don't think that's the case anymore. 
You go into a lot of detail about um, your mother throughout the book and you describe her as a very volatile and moody woman but also a very creative woman. Uh, she was judgmental and harsh on some things but then she had um, a huge amount of energy and 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 she was very funny in other times in your life and mm. you know you must have found it very difficult um, writing all that and committing all that down on paper. Yes. Because it, she I sounded such different. an extraordinary woman in a lot of ways but a woman who needed so much help and possibly didn't get that no, at an early stage. I don't think she got it at all. In fact, I think what she got from her father in particular was probably not very nice. I can't be more specific than that but I just feel because their relationship was a very troubled one and um, I mean one thing I, I just remember discovering which was astounded me because I'd never seen any wedding photographs um, and discovering that she got married in black, which in the 1950s was pretty radical. But I gather this was what her sister said to me, almost a way of, you know, like raising a kind of gesture to her father, in a sense. And um, she was an extraordinary woman, a very, very talented woman, who, like her male siblings, should have been allowed to go to university and develop a career, and she may have been a lot happier as a result. But they were also inherited problems, I think genetic problems, which run in our family. And she'd been given no help in understanding these or coming to terms with them at all. And her attitude to me was a very complicated one. I think when I first came along, I think she almost saw me as her redeemer. This I was the child that was going to redeem her life. I've, you know, She wouldn't be the first woman to think something like that. But when I disappointed her, I was. it was like being Satan cast out of heaven. It was really... It was terrifying, and you never knew where you were. And I realized I was constantly on edge as a child, um, always just to, even when everything seemed really, really nice, to know that it could turn in a second, and she could be quite terrifying. Um, but it, it was really interesting, because I think, I think the music helped me deal with what was going on in my head very, very much. And um, it wasn't until later, until I met Kate and was able to see my mother through Kate's eyes as well as my own. Well, I remember one occasion when, when we'd been to see my parents and Kate, on the way back, had to stop the car and cry with rage. She was so angry and upset about the things that mother had said to her about me. She couldn't believe it. And... Um, uh, I, she said, you must be awful for you hearing this. And I said, well, actually, no, I feel like I've been on trial for years and it's been going very badly. And somebody's just produced a really good witness for the defense. And I can see the jury going, hang on a moment. This is maybe more complicated than we thought. Yeah, it's an extraordinary passage, that part yeah. in the book and how um, Kate got so angry and defensive um when thinking how a mother would talk to her son in, in, in such dispassionate I can't terms. Believe you can't, I cannot believe, I can't tell you what a incredibly touching moment it was to have somebody who loved me be angry on my behalf in that context. Yeah. You know, it, it was actually to realise that, because one of the things I had difficulty with, we, 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 when we go into relationships as adults, we often project things connected with our parents onto our partners and that creates so many problems sometimes in relationships um and i had never ever been able to trust that anybody i was with would 
love me unconditionally. Never. It was just not an option. Uh, and of course, like a lot of depressives, I believe that was my fault. It was because I was not lovable in that way. And to realize one of the great lessons with Kate is, you know, she's been angry with me many times. She's a woman who sometimes can, can explode with rage too. But, but that realizing that she doesn't cease to love me in that moment has been one of the great extraordinary things in my life. And also seeing her being able to see my mother and to see the effect that it had on me, it, it felt like being thrown a lifeline or just hearing the turn of a key in the, in the lock of a jail and realizing that someone's come to let you out. It, it, it was extraordinary. And in last years, when my mother's behavior went, was completely, well, quite extraordinary behavior, <laughs> really very strange things. So I told one story in the book. Um, actually, to realize that I, I should no longer take her behavior as a comment on myself, that actually it wasn't, it wasn't my fault that she was like this. Children do blame themselves. They often, when they see their parents suffering, they, they do blame themselves. And so I, I did feel that what was going on with mother was, was in some way my fault. Actually being brought to the point of realizing that, A, I, I, it wasn't. B, I couldn't help her unless she was prepared to help herself, and she wasn't. And that, that was as the limit to what I could do was, was immensely releasing. But I do think it's very interesting that I've, I've had bipolar episodes for a lot of my adult life and actually since my teens, I think. Um, since Mother died, I haven't had one. And I do think that to some extent the intensity of my experience was environmental. It was coping with her as much as what I'd inherited genetically and what I'd experienced. And um, that when she ceased to be around, suddenly something got easier for me. And um, it's a terrible thing to have to say that about a parent because I, I would love her to have been the kind of mother that I could have loved unconditionally and, and, and well, I did for a lot of my life. And been at peace with and had some reconciliation with in my last years, but realizing that that was impossible and bringing myself to the point of saying, no, I, I, and it's not my fault that I can't, was hugely important. And um, that's very much where Kate comes in. Stephen, you highlight some extraordinary reads um, throughout the book, some in relation to psychology, some in relation to music, culture and so on. But two that really interested me were one by uh, Roger Scruton and the other by uh, Paul Robinson, mm. um, I think his memoir, Soundscapes. Can you talk me through those books? Well, uh, the book I mentioned by Roger Scruton is about Wagner yes. and particularly about Wagner's Tristan. And I think Roger really describes what he calls the look of love, which is very important in, in Wagner's Tristan. It's very interesting. Sometimes when you don't like a piece of music, it's very a reaction against it. It's sometimes worth asking yourself if it's because it's something in, it, it reminds you of something in yourself that you have difficulty with. And for years, I had difficulty with Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. And it was only later on in life that I began to realize it was because Tristan's agonized yearning for Isolde and this desperate, learning, lonely, isolated, tormented, wanting somebody just to see him and see him for what he is was very, very close indeed to what I felt. 